0: Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Well, good morning, everyone. Really glad that you're joining us here this morning. And again, as we say every week, a huge hey to the many of you watching and listening online, wherever you are in the world today. Well, we're li- really glad again that you're here, and this is the last in the series we've been doing called, called Touching a Heaven, Changing Earth. If you've got a Bible this morning, I'd love you to turn to Matthew chapter 17. This is a story familiar to many of us who have done church for a while. If you haven't, it's an exciting story to hear for the first time. We've just spent the last three weeks walking through a sampling of seasons where those that knew God and lived for God and loved Him and were faithful in boring, bad, and good times suddenly meet their God in a more profound, more tangible, more unexpected, more overwhelming way. From the shepherds at Jesus' birth to Elijah on Mount Carmel to Isaiah's call— All of them are examples of heaven touching and changing earth. A foretaste, of course, of what is to permanently come. The modern word for this within the Christian vernacular is a word that is misused a lot, but it still is powerful. It's the word revival, to duplicate life, uh, to actually have the God that we worship, the God we sing to and give to and live for and speak about and on behalf of, suddenly come upon His people with such power and such palpable presence that the lives, of individuals, then the life of the church begins to have such a change that those outside of the Christian community, those within the community around us, start having dramatic encounters with the God they are or are not even looking or searching for. You will know that heaven is touching earth when revival is actually happening to you or to a whole church community, when everything that is normal suddenly changes, or when all things that are cognitively known are suddenly and fully experienced. I'd like to go through a few uh, definitions this morning with you that describe what revival really is and what it's not. J.I. Packer wrote this, Revival is God's quickening visitation on His people, touching their hearts and deepening His work of grace in their lives. Someone else wrote it this way, Revival is an extraordinary season of religious interest. The next one is, it is the sovereign act of God in which he restores his own backsliding people to repentance, faith, and obedience. This is what others wrote. It's times of refreshing from the presence of God. It's the awakening or quickening of God's people back to their true nature and their true purpose. It's the return of the church from backsliding and the conversion of sinners. This is my favorite one. It is an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit, producing extraordinary results. Let me say that again. It is an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit, producing extraordinary results. Here's what others wrote. All of these people have experienced genuine revival. One just simply said it is a community that is saturated with God. One last one is this, it is the work of the Holy Spirit in restoring the people of God to a more vital spiritual life, witness and work by prayer and the word after repentance in crisis for their spiritual decline. As I read definitions like that, I begin to say to God, oh please, please, why not here? Now in church circles, people throw out a lot of words with a lot of, well, non definition So here's a question for us as we get going today. Is there a difference between renewal, revival, and awakenings? You hear those depending on what tradition you come from. And if you're not from a church background, you may have not even heard of them before. Renewal is when one individual in a community experiences a personal revival. A renewal is when an individual has a dramatic encounter with God and they themselves are deeply changed. Revival is when God comes on a whole community and does that work amongst all the families, children, teenagers, 20-somethings, adult, the aged. God moves in such power that the community has a vital encounter with a God that they love. Awakening goes way beyond that. An awakening is when the community around that church community starts themselves having those dramatic encounters and ends up just coming to church and meeting the living God, and half of them not even knowing why it's happening Now, one of the best passages that outlines God's unique work in this area is now what we call, in the modern day, the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, I I preached on this this passage from a different angle when we went through Mark, but let's look at Matthew's account today and see what Jesus, at this moment, is trying to show us and speak to us through the lens of revival. So, to the passage. What happens just before this event we're about to study today is very important. Jesus is walking with Peter and others and asks them the question that all of us need to answer. The answer, of course, leads to life or death, eternal life or eternal death. The answer can change the trajectory of one's whole life. In Matthew 16, it goes like this. It's verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he simply asked the disciples this. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say, well, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then Jesus stops and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, as usual, answered first, well, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. You're not just a prophet, he's saying. You're not just a spiritual leader or teacher. Not just a political revolutionary. Not one incarnation of God. Not one great religious teacher among many. Not just one path to God. You're not crazy. You're not a liar. You're not Satan the deceiver. You are, he says, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. You are the son of the living God. You are the only one, think about this, you are the only one that has seen God the Father face to face because you and the Father are one. So you can speak with an authority stemming from your Your own self identity, for all that you are is grounded in who you are, and that is in relationship with the Father. You are God in flesh. You are Emmanuel, God with us. Well, after that confession, that truth that's rocked the ages, that truth that's brought hope to millions, but has been a stumbling block for billions, then and then and only then does the Father and the Son choose at this moment to pull back the veil. Just a little bit more to show them that the one that they do know, the one that they had been serving with, seen, heal, eaten with, the one that Peter now has claimed is surrounded and is filled with everything they had heard and read from Genesis to Malachi. See, the one that they were hanging out with at that moment really was the God who walked with Adam and Eve. He was the God of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah. It's time heaven says. And so the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, in obedience to the Father, sets the stage for a revival. But at this moment, it's only for the inner circle, three out of the twelve. And so it starts like this in Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took up with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up by a high mountain by themselves. After six days, this should send up an Old Testament flare for all of us. In six days, God created all of reality, beauty, color, and said what? It is good. It was in six days that God spoke and existence came to be. Yet, this is signaling something new. A new creation is about to take place through Jesus' coming perfect life, death, and resurrection. A new creation that would not only bring us all back into relationship with God if we accepted it, but was the beginning of the end which would culminate into the restoration of Eden, a new heavens, and a new earth. Yet, there's more than just that connected to the six days. What is about to unfold is connected to God's giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses. Listen to the words of Exodus 24 and notice the time and remember words like fire, cloud, glory as we walk through this passage today. Exodus 24 reads like this. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me, on a mountain and stay here and I will give you tablets of stone with the law and the commands I've written for their instruction and so Moses went up the mountain and there a cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within that cloud and to the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the top of that mountain The connections are deep, and watch as we keep going. Notice it says that Jesus took them up. Just like God said to Moses, you need to come up. It's God who leads them. It's God who takes them. He starts the process. They don't know where they're going. They don't really know what's going to happen in the next few minutes. But they've agreed to one thing. Listen, they agreed that they were followers. And they would go where he goes, and they would listen to what he says. And so Jesus starts the process and takes them up this mountain, and he does it by themselves. Jesus takes them as far as possible from other people in everyday life. This is God's grace for a period, moving them from the usual, the boring, the known, the everyday, the mundane, to the unusual, to reality as it really fully is. Well, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus are now on this high mountain. If you read Luke's account, it says that they went to pray, to go connect with the Father, But like I preached a few years ago in Mark, what happens? Well, it happened to them like it happens to us. As they start praying, they got tired and started falling asleep. Anyone fallen asleep when they've prayed before? Raise your hand. Ah, see, it's a revival. Oh, Lord have mercy. As their eyes were closing, as dreams were now coming into their mind's eye, but they're supposed to be praying, as yawning turns into a losing battle with bedtime, everything changes at that moment. Suddenly the heavens literally rip open and this little mountain is consumed by unnatural light, fire, and brilliance. Terror and fear in milliseconds consume them. They wonder, is this dream or reality? So scared they lose their ability to move. They are transfixed and frozen. They are full of wonder. Sleep is now replaced by all five sentences being heightened and overwhelmed. And Matthew simply says these words, and there Jesus was transfigured before them. Transfigured, well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus was changed in appearance. The word transfigured is where we actually get our modern word metamorphosis from. He is transformed. There he is seen that he is fully human and fully God. These three get a glimpse of Jesus as seen in heaven. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, is manifest and revealed for all the senses. So Peter, James, and John see him in heavenly splendor. One wrote it this way, this transformation is not so much a physical alteration, but it is an added dimension of glory. It is the same Jesus they were hanging out with, but now with awesome brightness like the sun, like light, and Peter's confession, you are the Christ, is now fully realized spiritually and physically. Matthew continues by describing this beyond yet present experience as best as possible. It says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Mark records it this way. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone could bleach them in the whole world. For a moment, the veil is lifted and they see fully. He and his clothing become gleaming, glittering. They glisten brighter than any modern light we've ever invented in the modern world. The light is coming not only from within him, it is descending from above him. And never forget, the Bible says that God is the source of light and he's the creator of light. It says that his clothes are dazzling white. And like I mentioned in the Mark series, in ancient documents, there is very little reference to color of clothing and white was hardly worn ever because of the dirtiness of light. This is added in there on purpose for us to understand the uniqueness of this event. But the white also reminds us of something else. Jesus is who he claims. He is without sin. He is pure. He is perfect, and that is why he could come and die in my place and in your place to deal with the impurity, for only perfect can overcome the imperfect. Well, back to the story, Peter, James, and John look on as their vision tries to adjust to heavenly light. Suddenly, it says, they see two others, the most famed in Jewish history and faith. They are called the Fathers of Faith, the Patriarchs, and the Prophets. They had heard of these two since they had been born. It says, just then, just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Both now with Jesus ended their lives in supernatural ra- ways. Both were great leaders that had talked to God on Mount Sinai, yet there's more. Moses, of course, is the great lawgiver, the one that had led Israel out of Egypt. Then there's Elijah, the greatest miracle-working prophet, who came to represent all the prophets. Now they're here to witness, to testify that the one between them is the fulfillment of everything between Genesis and Malachi, the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament in history, allegory, poetry, prophecy, was to prepare the world for the coming of one person, and his name is Jesus. The law and the prophets show us our sin. They show us our need for an external Savior. They give us hope, and now at this moment, time is shattered. Heaven and earth begin to kiss each other, and Jesus, God in flesh, is about to start the process that will lead to greater miracles and the greatest second exodus. Well, how does Peter respond? It's always Peter, isn't it? (laughs) Lord, it's good for us to be here, he said. If you wish, uh, I could set up three shelters, one for, you know, Moses and you and Elijah. Notice that Peter calls him Lord, not rabbi, not teacher, not master, Lord. He actually uses a name of God from the Old Testament. In the confusion, Peter says, well, let's stay here. I mean, this is great. This, this is an answer uh, to all of our prayers. It's all right in the now. The kingdom and heaven is right now. Uh, we, we've been made to commune with you, to, to live with you. This is what life is supposed to be like, the Bible says. So uh, we don't want to go back to the mundane, the boring, the six-day work week, sickness and family fights and rebellious teens and the Romans and politics and war and dealing with disease and demons. And then Jesus, you just blah, blah all the time about death and dying and the you know what let's just hang out here one church father said peter wanted to settle down in the security of temporal bliss and prevent jesus from going down to fulfill his true mission and notice the place of the shelters teaches something too one old old preacher i was reading this week preached these things years ago peter seemingly in fact wanted to prove something, to place the lawgiver and the prophet side by side with the divine master, as if all three of them were equal. At once we are told the proposal was rebuked in a marked manner. As Peter is working on his strategic plan to camp forever and ever with Jesus and his friends, another act of heaven interrupts Peter's thoughts, his desires, his human invented agenda for the moment. While Peter was speaking, catch this, a bright cloud enveloped them. Remember Exodus 24? And a voice from the cloud said, now a bright cloud, this is the heart of everything I need to speak to you about today. This is it. This history of this cloud is everything that we need to understand today. This cloud is what we call the Shekinah glory which means the dwelling place of God. It was a term used by rabbis to mean the very manifest presence of God. This supernatural cloud is always in the Bible connected to brilliance, glory, fire, an overwhelming sense of the God that people knew. This presence was seen at the giving of the Ten Commandments. We saw that today. It was seen in the wilderness wanderings where the people of Israel, when they left Egypt were led by a cloud a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night same experience it was the experience both at the dedication of the tabernacle and Solomon's temple it's the same fire that came down and consumed the altar on mount carmel that dave preached on last week it's seen in the call of isaiah and ezekiel it is the same glory that shone around the shepherds at jesus' birth when the angels broke out in song and they were terrified it is seen here at the transfiguration of jesus and also at the birth of church at the birth of the church in acts 2 it says that fire came down in acts 2 and then separated into tongues of fire on each of them it's seen at the death of stephen and also at the conversion of paul this is a huge thing for us as a church to understand at this moment let me read a few verses exodus 40 the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the lord filled the tabernacle 1 Kings 8, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled Solomon's temple, that is the temple of the Lord, and all the priests could not perform their servants because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord was in his temple. Ezekiel 1.4, and I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light, and the center of the fire looked like glowing metal. Luke 2, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Acts 2, 2, suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind actually came from heaven. See the connection back to Ezekiel? And filled the whole house And they were, where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated, meaning they were together at once and then separated, and came to reach rest on each of them. And then it says this interesting thing in the Matthew passage. It says that the cloud enveloped them or overshadowed them. And I was thinking, overshadowed? Where have I heard that word? That's sort of a, hmm, and then I caught it. It's the Christmas story, right? Gabriel comes to that young teenage girl named Mary and says to her these words, The Holy Spirit, Mary, will come upon you and will overshadow you. And we all need to get our view of the cloud right. It matters. See, when I think of a cloud, I think of a snuggly ad. It's soft and puffy, safe where angels eat cream cheese. Like, you know, that, that's, that's what we think. But not here. This cloud is full of God's glory, for it is God. It is full of light and lightning. And most important, it is always marked by fire. It has fire literally flashing out of it. And it is out of this cloud, out of that fire, that the voice of the Father speaks. This, he says, is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And then he says this, listen to him. It's the same thing as Jesus' baptism. It says just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit now descending on him like a dove and the voice came from heaven and said, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. The spirit now in the form of a cloud is given to affirm Jesus' identity again, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension would now be valid Here we see God in his fullness, just like at his baptism, you have the Father's voice, you have God in flesh, the Son of God, you have the Spirit in the form of a cloud. We see the reality of the Trinity, God who is found in one, yet in three persons, forever praised, amen. And what does God say? Listen to my Son. Well, the reaction of the disciples is the reaction throughout Scripture, verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they, they fell face down to the ground and they were terrified. In that moment, they knew God was God and they were not. At that moment, all their own sin came to the forefront. See, when God moves in such a way, it's for His glory, then our freedom, so then we can be pushed out to do ministry. We've got to face our sin first. It's what Isaiah went through, what Dave preached on two weeks ago. When the glory of God came upon him, what did he say? Woe to me, he cried out, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The work of God, listen, the work of God encountering him after the relationship exists is always full of terror and euphoria, fear and adoration. Verse 7, but then Jesus came and touched them and said, get up. don't don't be afraid. There's the Christmas story again. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. It was Origen, the great church father, who wrote these words. The disciples understood that the Son of God had been speaking with Moses. It was God who had said to Moses, no one can see my face and live. And the disciples understood the testimony of Moses about God. They were not even able themselves at that moment to endure the radiance of God's word. They humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God. But after the touch of Jesus, the word, they lifted up their eyes, and there they saw Jesus and no other. For Moses and the law and Elijah and the prophets had become one with the gospel of Jesus. Well, as soon as it happened, it was over. What a letdown. All the emotion, the adrenaline, the cool factor, the ego boost, let alone seeing a glimpse of eternity, all gone. And and what does Jesus say in the end? What does he say? Verse 9, as they go down the mountain, don't tell anyone what you've seen. Can you imagine? Seriously. Can you imagine the other thing? Hey, Andrew, guess what we got to see? And Jesus goes, no. Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. One wrote these words, what they needed to hear when they came off that mountain and re-entered the everyday is the requirement of suffering the way of the cross and death the biblical heroes are now vanished from sight the splendor fades the voice of god falls silent except god continues to speak through the sun visions come and go but jesus's god's word remains on the mountain they get a brief glimpse of jesus in resplendent glory but now they're too dazed by the sights to even understand what was going on and what's really interesting if you do this later today is if you read the last part of matthew 17 they come off the mountain. Jesus says again, I'm going to die. And then they walk. And the first thing they encounter off the mountain is a young teenage boy who's demonized. And the dad comes and says, you got to help me. Please. And then says, the other nine, they haven't been able to cast out this demon. What can you do about it, Jesus? The very first thing they face as the transfiguration is the kingdom of darkness. And it's back to the kingdom of God slowly but surely taking ground. The question I struggled with this week to us here at Crothers Creek, we who are placed in this time, I said, God, again, what are you trying to tell your people for this moment? What are you trying to tell me? I was brought back to the crisis we face as a church, and so I just need to go through it one more time. Many here who call see further home have a true faith. It's really dry, though. Many of us have not worshiped Jesus for real in years. Many of us do not have victory over sin. Our Christian life is marked by powerlessness. And many of us have really never seen all sorts of people come to Jesus in dramatic ways. Most of us have been faithful genuinely faithful but we've never had the presence of God come upon us and then there's the crisis if I can say beyond us there's the hundreds of thousands in Durham that don't even know Jesus in a personal way I mean look around and think upon the many that have nothing to do with faith or church in any way look around and see the many that are connected to church you know sort of but don't really know Jesus in a deep way and think upon the names right now of the many that used to connect with Jesus The people that walked away. Sin, pain, laziness, misunderstanding, confusion, church politics, and whatever the reason, they've become prodigals. And think about the many that live among us that are connected to other faiths genuine people, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Baha'i, Sikhs, uh, witches, pagans, those with self-invented faith, the agnostic among us, most of them, if not all, are good people, they're sincere people, they're kind people, but they've never been brought to the place of salvation through Jesus, the only Savior, the one that can set us free from sin, the one that reveals that self-trust and belief, the belief that being religiously faithful is enough to get saved. And then, let's be honest, what about all the pain in the area? I mean, real pain—the unspoken pain, the history, the abuse. I mean, who can really give life change, uh, freedom from sin? Who can give ability to forgive, uh, move people from darkness to light? Us? Uh, church programs, maybe. Maybe. Can we really do this? I mean, do we really have the power to change people to see them come on mass, like we've been struggling with for the last three months? Do we really even have the power to change us? No. See, it takes God and His power, His fire, His cloud, His voice, His Son, His Word. You're saying, well, John, why are you saying all this again? This is why I'm saying it. You and I need a personal renewal. This church needs a genuine, non-invented revival. And our community needs an awakening our community desperately needs an awakening and if the awakening would happen here you understand what would happen right you know that since the world is here the world would be touched overnight you understand that this could be the possibly the greatest mission move in 120 years because the world is in toronto and if God would show up here in another churches, the world would be touched in seconds. Not just through YouTube, though that would be fun, but through relationships. And as I read through this passage, I see a simple, honest process that's here. It's this. We as a community, we as individuals, need to be willing to be led up the mountain by Jesus. It's the prayer I've been asking you to sincerely pray. Some of you have, probably many have not. The prayer that says, God, do anything in me, anything in me, for your glory, my freedom, so the world can see Jesus. It's saying to Jesus, take me anywhere you must, anywhere, do anything you need to do in me. I am so tired of not living a powerful Christian life. I am tired of not seeing the New Testament happen in the church. Do anything you need, expose my sin, bring up my pain, do anything, set me free for your glory, so others get to see Jesus. That's the beginning. And when people get serious about that, things change. The only other thing we can do in our power is, Lord, take us up the mountain. It's where we start praying sincerely, daily, God, I mean, Sarah said it, but it's, it's actually found in our prayer lives. Revive this church, and I'm going to keep asking you to do it, God, because your word will not turn void. I'm going to keep asking until you do it. And then this is what happens God, under his sovereignty, leads us up. He reveals himself fully to many of us who have followed him for years. Then we're going to get terrified as a church. It's all going to come out all the sin. We're all going to know our need. Our pain will get exposed and he'll begin to start dealing with us in deep ways that are are amazing because it's for our freedom. Then the Holy Spirit comes in full power. The cloud, the fire, the dove comes and gives the church only for a period of time an extraordinary movement of himself producing extraordinary results in our lives and our families in the church and then thank God in the community. And then during that time, we'll only be pointed to one person. You know that, right? It won't be me or other pastors or elders. It won't be any of us. It will be Jesus. He'll be the only one we'll be able to see. He'll, he'll be the one that has supremacy in, his, in our lives. We'll care about his will, his agenda. His glory will become central. And then we'll be able to read these verses together for the first time with sincerity on Mass. Second Corinthians 5. We are confident. I say I'd prefer to be away from the body and at home with Jesus. That's not us. Honestly, as a fr- Honestly, that's not us. I, I'm confidently saying to you that I desire Jesus so much that, I, I, oh my goodness, this life is nothing compared to what he is. That is not our church. And then he says this, continues, so we make it our goal to please him, whether at home in the body or away from it. You know that revival has hit you or our church when Second Corinthians chapter 5 is real. And then what's the result? Is it that Crethers Creek becomes no. We're sent out. Isaiah was sent out, Peter, James and John were sent out, Jesus was sent out himself. The whole point is that we need to cry out for this move, not only because we want a vibrant, deep faith, but because people are going to hell and we know that God does not want them to perish and we are in the place where we say, do anything in me so I will be changed, so I will be the vessel where others come. The truth is this, and I end with this. God is present here, you know that, right? He's present here just like Jesus was with the disciples. We walk with him, we talk with him, we're faithful. But the cry that's different is we're asking him to move us from the normal to the godly, unnormal for a period. That's what I'm praying every day for myself now. Every person connected to Crothers Creek in their age and stage, and then I'm praying it for Durham. I am praying for refreshing. I am praying for an extraordinary move of the Holy Spirit, which will produce extraordinary results for God's glory, not mine. A work where we all actually remember our true purpose and nature. Where we are overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit to the point of being terrified and yet still hear Jesus say to us, do not be afraid. Where Jesus matters so much that we don't think that this life is the best and whatever is to come is whatever. I want so many of you to have a vibrant faith. I want so many in this area to meet Jesus in a way that it doesn't even make sense but they just come. I do desire an awakening. And all I can do is ask. All we can do is come to Jesus and say, lead us there because you are not another God we get to seduce down. We can only ask. All that we do in this church, or most of it, is good. It's not bad. Some of it's great. But I'm just here telling you as a fellow journeyer, until we get serious about praying for this type of act in this church, we will never see ground gained en masse. It doesn't matter how many alphas we run, how strong we are in City of Hope, how many counselors, like all of that is godly and good and from the will of God. Don't get me wrong, and it's genuine. But until we as a community start seriously praying about this, we will not see serious gains in the kingdom. So I end simply with this. And I'm in the position with you. Let's ask. Because I am so desperate to see people meet the one we've met. This was amazing this morning. I'm asking for thousands of these. Honestly. So if you're in the place where you want this, pray with me as we end. God, we've done this series where we've just walked through when you did this, and I want to acknowledge right up front right now that you're God and we're not. Uh, this, is, this is your work, your will. You're not some idol that we can, you know, beg down with some offering. You're God. But I come before you among my friends. And honestly, God, I mean, we're faithful and we love you and we're going to keep being faithful no matter what happens. I mean that we've sworn that to you when we became Christians. <sighs> but God, look at your people. Is this how we're supposed to live? Powerless? Many people defeated by sin and pain? I thought you said you were supposed to give life and life abundant. Look, Lord, at us. We need your move. And we need it because of your glory, not ours. I mean, we're going to start there. But then, Lord, I, I, I simply ask you, under deep humility, look look around the church, God. You know all of them. They're lost. And to be honest, Lord, um, we don't have enough lifetimes even to reach half of them. And we don't know how half the time. So as a community, we're just saying to you, please, beyond the religiosity of what we do, beyond the songs and trying to set things up, please, we ask for your move among us. We ask that Jesus would be transfigured among those who know him that he be resplendent for a moment, that we'd be overwhelmed, that you would come and deal with our sin, that you would heal us and set us free, and that the presence of God would be so palpable just for a time that many would come. I know a lot of people talk to you, Lord, about revival and use the word all over the place. And a lot of times it's for wrong motives. It's been wrong even with us, I know. But I'm asking, revive us. Don't pass us by. Revive us, and please, I ask you for an awakening. God, if you would do this, the world would be touched. And I know it's your will because you say that heaven has every family group in it. It's the most multicultural thing going. <laughs> and you've brought everyone here to Toronto. So, again, way beyond my comfort zone, I ask you, please, for our church and other churches, do this because the world could be changed. That's all I've got left to say to you. God, your kingdom come and your will be done among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.carotherscreek.ca.